This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, everybody. This is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Second podcast this week, but one I wanted to do. It's a guest who's been on before. I consider this a really, really important news story. And he's always been incredibly generous with his time. TJ Quinn is a senior writer for ESPN, specializing in investigations. If you are uh, a sports media consumer in this country, I think you know who TJ Quinn is, given his excellent work over the years for ESPN and the Daily News. has done um, really just some remarkable stuff prior to his ESPN run, was a New York Mets beat writer, for those of you listening in the East Coast area. He's coming on today to discuss what is happening with Brittany Griner. He is one of the reporters in this country who's been assigned to this nearly from the beginning. And he's a really good person to talk to about this. And he's been incredibly generous with his time. TJ Quinn, welcome back to the Sports Media Podcast. Uh, Nothing close to as generous as that introduction, but uh, very happy to be here. All right, TJ, let me, I think I always tell you this when it comes to when you've come on to talk about the Griner case, um, if I'm obviously if I'm if I'm incorrect on something, just feel free to uh, interrupt me and say it. Uh, you know, don't be shy as I don't think you will. As we tape this, TJ, um, Brittany, where the case stands, more than four months after she was arrested at Moscow's uh, main airport for cannabis possession, Russian court has set the start date for the criminal trial for her. It's Friday. She could face 10 years in prison if convicted on charges of large-scale transportation of drugs. And thank you for the AP for telling me this. Fewer than 1% of defendants in Russian criminal cases are acquitted. Unlike the U.S., acquittals can be overturned. So am I correct, TJ? That's sort of where we are, broad broad strokes. And please fill in any of the sort of more uh, granular gaps that you want. This is where we stand right now? This is pretty much where we stand. And I've just really learned the last day or so that um, this American idea of a trial starting, the judge gaveling in, the uh, proceedings beginning, it's very different in Russia. 
Um, this is more equivalent. I, I used, it may be a really strained metaphor, but a Harvard educated former uh, prosecutor I spoke to yesterday said, um, yeah, it actually works. This is more the equivalent of um, the, the prosecutor and the investigators have finished their portion of it and they've turned it over to the judge. Now it's in the hands of the judge. So the trial, such as we understand it, the hearing of evidence, um, the hearing of witnesses, that could begin Friday, but it's more equivalent to, bear with me here, before a Major League Baseball game, if the weather is iffy, it, the team has the ability to postpone it if they think it's, you know, that, that they might, you know, be rained out. At some point, though, they hand it over to the umpires and then it's in their hands. And it's up to the umpire to decide, do we play the game? Do we postpone? Do we delay? Whatever. That's kind of where we are. It's been handed to the umpires. So there will be a hearing on Friday in Russia where the judge begins his portion of it. And he'll run through some procedural stuff. He may or may not call witnesses. But what happens in a Russian trial is they may have a day of court. They may not meet again for a week. They may... Um, expect some witness and everybody shows up to court and the witness isn't there. So they adjourn for two weeks. It's not like the U S where a judge sets a calendar and says, this is it. We're going to have X number of hours of testimony from the prosecution and then the defense. And then we wrap it and that's it. No, it's pretty loose. And it's really in the hands of the judge. It's not the sort of adversarial system we're accustomed to. It's inquisitorial. It's the judge leads it. Um, someone described to me the prosecutor basically becomes a potted plant at that point. But here's the thing to keep in mind. None of it matters. This is There's almost no chance this is a legitimate legal proceeding. It is all pretense. Every expert I've spoken to, whether it's U.S. State Department, academics, people with experience over there, a number of lawyers, this is all theater. It is simply Russia pretending this is a legitimate procedure in order to maintain leverage in a negotiation. This will not be resolved by a judge's gavel. This will be resolved by a deal that the U.S. government cuts with the Russian government. That's what's going to end this. All right. You, you, you answered a lot of my questions there about just the whole notion of like, show trial versus any kind of pretense of what we think about the law here in the United States. From your reporting and from your understanding, it would strike me that Russia would want the optics of someone saying you are guilty and this is your sentence, almost the, the theater part of the judge saying this. From your understanding, like, does that, one, does that happen? And two, are there cameras in the courtroom and or would there be cameras given the high profile nature of this case? No, there won't. There won't be cameras. Um, and my understanding is that um, it, it's we, we won't know if it's really public or not until it happens. Um, it's tough to get a gauge. I spoke to someone yesterday who's a fluent Russian speaker and was going through Russian media reports of this for me, um, because if it's in the Russian media, you know, it's that the government's OK it. Um, there are only a couple of truly independent outlets and they have almost no influence and no access. Um, so what we're seeing is from the Russian government. And it wasn't clear exactly what the procedure would be there. I was told there are times where the, the court will say it's public. But then if you show up and you're not directly related to the case, they won't let you in. Um, but for something like this, they may want the media in there. Um, they're going to try to use one of the biggest questions is going to be what sort of evidence do they have? Cause they'll present something. 
either she had vape cartridges with hashish oil or she didn't, right? I mean, it would seem like it's pretty straightforward. You could have really three options. One is they present evidence that even an American who supports Brittany Griner would say, okay, that's compelling. Here are the lab results. Somebody had a chance to check it. No question. She did what they accused her of doing. The other is that some kind of specious evidence, maybe it's compelling, maybe it's not, or it could be fabricated and completely laughable, um, which was kind of the case with Trevor Reed, the U.S. Marine who was you know, released after more than two years back in May. Um, when he went on trial for allegedly hitting a Russian cop, um, the testimony was, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to characterize it because I can't remember it exactly, but it, it was laughable. And the point was they were just going to convict this guy. The shock in this would be if there's anything but a conviction. If Russia, you know, Russia's able to say she was given a fair trial. We had evidence, no matter what anyone thinks of it. She was sentenced. The whole point is to create pressure on the U.S. government to get her out. If Brittany Griner's supporters in the United States see, oh, my God, she's been sentenced to 10 years in a Russian prison or any amount of time in a Russian prison, there's this huge hue and cry uh, to the White House to cut some kind of deal. That's what they want. Russia has been very clear through their own media. They want to trade her for somebody over here. Um, that that's the, the real intended goal of this is to put pressure on the Biden White House. OK, so, yeah, I have no doubt that, like, there'll be evidence presented. But, I mean, we're talking about a place that is famous for state sponsored doping. Uh, I mean, to, to trust them with this stuff would be, I mean, it speaks for itself. Um, one more thing before I get to a couple other areas I want to get to. Do we know if she will have at least representation in the courtroom? Will she have her Russian appointed counsel next to her? She has, um, from what I understand, a, a good legal team. Um, but the, the legal team can only do so much. It's They're, they're like the Washington generals in this. Um you know, they know they're probably going to lose. What they can try to do is is just raise enough issues in, in court um, to at least let the public, you know, hear where things are a little hinky. Um, she has her own attorneys, not not court appointed. My understanding is that you do not want a public defender in Russia because they essentially work with the prosecution. Um She's got real attorneys who have been able to see her a couple of times a week. That's given um, her family and her supporters, you know, the team around her, some confidence that, okay, she's actually okay. They have eyes on her. Um, so it's a good legal team, but it's like, again, like, you know, you could have the best team in the world against the Harlem Globetrotters, you know, who's going to win. Um, so they're allowed to object. They're allowed to present their own evidence. But I was also told that at time, there are times when during the investigation phase, the defense will come up with something exculpatory presented to the prosecutor. And then the prosecutor can say, well, I don't buy it. I'm not putting it in the case file. And then when they hand it to the judge and the defense tries to bring it up in court, the judge says, well, I can't consider it because it wasn't in the case file. The whole thing is rigged. And it's, you know, I know it sounds, you know, if you haven't followed this issue, like, you know, how could some American journalist who's been over there once say with any confidence that this is the case? It's, a long history of this, especially with drug trials, because drugs are a huge cultural issue in that country. I mean, there was a there was a, a dissident we spoke to a few years ago, who, um, a guy named Landed uh, Martinuk, who was close to Boris Nemtsov, the assassinated uh, former rival of Putin's, 
who had raised a lot of questions about uh, how money was being spent on the Sochi Olympics. And when he was all of a sudden pulled off a train by the FSB, his wife called the lawyer and the lawyer starts screaming over the phone, do not let his suitcases out of your sight, because they knew that that's the playbook. You plant drugs on somebody um, and then you, you just hold their fate in your hands. It's, I don't know any credible person who would think this is a legitimate uh, procedure. All right. So one more thing before I get into some media stuff. Do we make the presumption that Vladimir Putin or someone very, very close to the highest levels of the Russian government are well aware of what's going on and, and perhaps even um, leading what's going on here, given, as you have stated, that this is ultimately a high stakes play to make the Biden White House look um, look weak and or to eventually try to get to a prisoner swap. It's really interesting. Um, you know, somebody way up the chain of command has some influence on it and that no one's going to make a decision in terms of the prosecution or cutting a deal um, without knowing that somebody way up the chain has okayed this. Is it Putin himself? I mean, I, I don't know. It's hard to say because he's you know, otherwise engaged right now. He's got a war that is not going according to plan and he's being isolated daily by the rest of the world. And um, does he care about one particular case? He might not. But my understanding from, you know, speaking to former CIA, government officials have said that he doesn't need to be engaged. With Putin, it's very clear what his goals are. And the people under him know this is what would make the boss happy. So if you've got a high profile American who's there on a drug case, they know the boss wants a conviction. The boss wants you to cut a good deal. Um, it is tricky from what I understand that when negotiations start, you have to know exactly who you're talking to. Maybe you're talking to the prosecutor, but the prosecutor may have absolutely no influence on this. Who is the one who is, is controlling her case? And the people who do this for a living, the U.S. State Department Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs, that office, along with former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Bill Richardson, who, who does this full time as a private citizen, their team, that's one of the first jobs they have to figure out is who exactly are we talking to? Who are we cutting a deal with? Um, I presume at this point they know who that is. Um, but it, but it's part of, you know, it, it's such an opaque system. You know, are you, are you answering to, to one oligarch who's got an interest in this? Are you answering to, you know, someone in the ministry? Are you answering to Putin himself? Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got 
you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odysseypodcast, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash odysseypodcast now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash odysseypodcast. All right, let's, um, <clears throat> let's get into the um, media element of this, TJ. Um, we have talked throughout on this, and there was a point where the the people closest to Griner, her family, her agents, <clears throat> and the WNBA infrastructure um, specifically did not be public with a lot of this stuff. They were they were sort of, I guess, trying to do the best quiet diplomacy that they could. Strategy on this obviously shifted where you wanted to get as much attention as you could on this case, and I think that's clearly where we are today. If you could take yourself out of this, because I think you and ESPN have done a really good job uh, of trying to keep this front and center. Um, you know, you've been on major properties of your employer. I've seen, um, I've seen the story in a lot of different places at ESPN. They obviously have a vested interest in the WNBA, so you know, let's not pretend otherwise. And and Brittany Griner is a star in a league that they have financial interest in. But that said, like ESPN in my opinion, stepped up here and they've done a good job. Can you remove yourself, TJ, from your employer and give me a sense of how you think the media coverage in the United States have been has been in this story? I will I will follow you by giving you my take, but I would like to know yours first. Uh, man, we could do a semester on this. Um, yeah, at first, you, you've got this situation where one of the top players in her league, one of the best athletes in the world, is is in detention in another country you know why is that not massive news and it speaks of course to the inequity in, in women's sports but also the fact that among female athletes in this country um they tend to be either soccer players or an individual athlete like serena williams or simone biles who break through if you know is it simply the fact that she was a woman not simply but obviously the fact that we're talking about a women's league has a lot to do with the attention that it gets from the media Generally, um, it's a it's a niche uh, sport in this country when it comes to media coverage. So you had that, but you also that meant an opportunity early on to negotiate for her, or, or at least try to handle her case in a way that didn't elevate her profile to where she became so valuable to Putin that you know they, I mean they didn't know if she would you know Russia would be seeking a negotiated settlement. There was a hope that maybe this can be treated as a legitimate legal exercise. It does happen over there. Um, and that as long as there was a chance to do this and keep it under the radar, they would take that. Then it got clear, you know, there was a point in May where the US government decided, okay, now we're going to switch it. Uh, we're going to officially designate her as wrongfully detained. And the people around Brittany Griner had been asking up to that point, please, you know, this is what we're asking. The State Department has recommended, experts have recommended, we really keep a low profile. 
And we had a decision to make as a company. How do we handle this? It is clearly news. I can tell you that no one ever, ever raised with me or any my immediate supervisors the question of our relationship with them as a, as a property. It was simply, what's the news value on this? It was a new story we had to cover, but we also recognized that this may be someone who's being used for Russian propaganda purposes and that we had to be mindful. So when there were photos of her early on and, and some video, we didn't use them at first. You know, we, we knew it was a story that needed to be talked about, um, but you had to respect that somebody's safety and possibly her life were at stake and that you had to govern the coverage. You know, I'm not comfortable agreeing with somebody. Yeah, I'm going to tailor my coverage to benefit your, your client um, or your loved one. Um, but we, we recognize that we really had to do that. Once you got to the point where the State Department says, okay, we think she's wrongfully detained. We're going to go to work to try to bring her home. That's when their interests and the interests of Team Griner split. It's in Team Griner's interest to raise as much attention as possible because they want the same thing Russia does, the White House to cut a deal. Um, that's really all they're concerned about. Um, but the rest of the coverage, I, you know, it was pretty fascinating that you just haven't seen that much of it. I mean, we have a pretty good operation for women's basketball. We've got some incredible people, um, you know, and, and who I know you know very well. Um, they reflected what was going on within the world of women's basketball. The question was, what would happen with the men? Um, they really wanted as much attention during the NBA finals as they could get. And there was some, you know, Carmelo Anthony and um, Steph Curry spoke up, LeBron James tweeted at one point. But one of the things that I heard from people was, was the men were a little reluctant to get engaged sometimes because they were afraid of looking stupid that they, they didn't, you know, I mean, I can't speak for everyone generally, but that speaking to people who cover the NBA, they were saying, Guys are reluctant because, once again, it's an international issue and they don't want the blowback that some guys had on China where they speak up and then suddenly the whole world says you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. Um, so a number of guys did. They wore T-shirts. They tried to raise awareness. Um, but no one has really seen that sure-footed in their coverage. And then the other issue is what's there to cover? She's still there. When there are things, when there are news events like – the reclassification of her status, like her being trotted out for a perp walk, um, you know, for a hearing, there's a reaction to it, but then it moves very quickly. How much is just the modern news cycle where nothing stays in the news very long and how much of it is, you know, this continued inequity and in how we see men's and women's sports? I'm not sure, but I, I've been surprised you know, I've seen a lot of conversations out there. I'm not going to point fingers at any particular person or outlet where it's people talking off the top of their heads. It's clear they don't know what they're talking about um, and they haven't done reporting on it. And that to me, that, I don't know, I don't want to be a jerk here, but it shows a lack of respect for the topic um, that you, you didn't do reporting. You're just kind of opining. That was a long answer, but. <laughs> no, well. We got a lot of opining in the world, uh, unfortunately, but including on this podcast sometimes. So for me, um, I, you spelled it out much better than I could have ever spelled it out. And there was this sort of dichotomy that existed that initially you really wanted, I think, be respectful to the wishes of 
those closest to the person who's being held in this horrific situation to, you know, it's not to say that a journalist's duty is to is to listen to someone and then not write about it, but I think you have to you do have to be a human being or first and foremost, and you never want to put somebody in someone's harm. So then when things switched, TJ, as you as you pointed out, um, when the, the, the Griner camp, those closest to her, want this to be publicized because they do have an agenda here and and I understand it and respect it that they want to put pressure on the the Biden White House. Um, they want as much publicity as possible. And that's when you, as you, I think, really smartly stated, they want to get people involved with the NBA and they want to use that massive megaphone. Where I come down on, and I haven't really talked a lot about this because I, I do think it, it, at least at the beginning, was kind of a very easy like sports radio talk show game to play. But the more I think about it, TJ, I, I, I can't escape the idea that if a backup quarterback in the NFL was being held in the same situation Brittany Griner was, this would be front page story in every sports outlet many, many times more than the Griner has. And we would see this story being played far bigger than it has been. And so I do think there's absolutely an element of gender in this. My instincts do say that I think there's an element in that Griner's LGBTQ and that athletes who are gay and lesbian are not, I think, front and center in the coverage the way a straight male, let's be, you know, uh, sports, I wouldn't even say white, but a straight male sports star would be. So I, I do find myself sort of trying to contemplate and figure out like how much of those are our elements here, and I think they are at play, versus, as you just talked about before, like, there isn't always something new. You do react when the news comes out, and you can't have, you can't as an outlet send anybody to Russia to report on the story. You can't, you can't send them to the courtroom. So I, you know, like you, I'm rambling because I have my own mixed feelings on this, but I can't get past the fact that I'll just randomly use somebody like if this is Baker Mayfield, like my gut just tells me we're having a different conversation about this because you're one of 50 people on the story. Right. Right. No, I I think I think it's a huge part of it. And I think, frankly, her sexuality does have something to do with it. And, you know, the the junior sociologist in me, um, my sister's a sociologist close enough. Um, I, you know, there is the sense that the uh, the American public at large, doesn't know how to think about her, right? She's not like other athletes. We tend to celebrate. Right. And as, ne- and as never, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but like I've covered, I covered Griner in college and I've written a lot about women's basketball. They've really never been able to figure her out in many ways. No, she's, I mean, reason. she's just her, by her own personality, absolutely enigmatic. And, you know, she's recognized the power that she has as a, as a cultural symbol and has embraced that in a way that is clear. She has not always been comfortable doing. When she came out and said she was a lesbian, you know, and her father did not react well to it, um, you know, that was this was not somebody who was looking to get out there in the spotlight. She's clearly never enjoyed it. And I mean, it just always struck me the first the only time I was around her, I literally bumped into her in in Bristol um, when there was some WNBA event on campus. And 
you know, all these WNBA players are there. And, you know, like the NBA players, they stand out because they're taller than everybody. I'm in line for Starbucks and I, someone bumps me from behind. I hear, excuse me, from about two feet above my head. And I turn around, I'm looking at her sternum. And I had this realization that moment of, my God, you know, I've seen her on TV for years, back to her days at Baylor. But this is someone who has never, probably since the age of nine, has never been in a room where she wasn't the center of attention, where even if she wasn't speaking, everybody was staring at her. And her personality is tough to figure out. And she isn't like other female athletes in this country. Abby Wambach was not comfortable talking about her sexuality until the end of her career. Uh, Megan Rapino is absolute exception in how much she's em embraced that, you know, her full identity and, um, you know, but people like, you know, Mia Hamm was a star, not just because she was the best ever at what she did. Um, and I know there's some Brazilians, Brazilians right to argue right now, but um, she wasn't just the best. She was also attractive. Um, that's what we celebrate in this country. It's not enough to be great at what you do. You have to meet this classic heterosexual, you know, normative version of what attractive is um, in order to get attention. So there's no way you can separate that from the way people look at her. And, um, and there's also, you know, I've talked to experts about this. There's this idea of who is deserving of attention and sympathy and who is not. And she was over there of her own accord. She's been accused of bringing drugs in. So there is a big part of the population that is ready to say, well, what the hell was she thinking? She deserves this. Why was she over there? Why did she try to bring drugs in, even though there is absolutely no evidence yet that she did? Maybe she did. I don't know. Um, but people look for reasons to write somebody off. And with her, they're there. If you've got certain feelings about, uh, about sexuality, about gender, about her appearance, about her position on the national anthem, um, about the fact it's a drug accusation, it's really easy to just look the other direction. TJ, how often are you let me like rephrase that are, has has the 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 apparatus around griner's um camp her agent um lindsay kagawa colas who is an excellent agent has been prominent in women's basketball for a long time uh britney griner's wife uh friends of hers are they accessible or have they been accessible to someone in your position. And if they're talking off the rock, you'd obviously don't have to say that, but I, I want to just get a sense of, of I, I, my, I should say my sense is that in the last month, two months, people around Brittany have become more public and willing to be, to go on the record. Is my, is my assessment of that correct? It is correct. Um, and it's deliberate. Um, there, you know, the people were looking toward, uh, th th this is this was all really coming from Lindsay, her agent. She was kind of the, the focus, and anybody else you, that you talked to, it was clear that they were respecting what she and the team around her, you know, folks from Wasserman, her agency, um, and the family wanted. Now they were taking their directions at first from the State Department, um, you know, and and so people have been accessible, but. It has been very strategic that when when you saw the decal on the floor of WNBA courts, um, when you saw um, 
Oh, like like uh, for the drafts when Kathy Engelbert, the commissioner, um, started off right. by started. That's she right. Started, first thing she did it, it, when she opened uh, the, proce- the proceedings. Everything's a court now. Um, when she when when they started the the draft that night, first thing she did was talk about Brittany Griner. That's all deliberate, and it's been this slow, steady campaign to try to raise awareness to tell players, yes, it's okay to speak up now. Um, to make uh, Sherelle Griner, Brittany's wife, more available. Um, you know, very limited uh, capacities. But anything that you see coming out of coming from them, it is it is absolutely deliberate. You know, it's it's interesting you say that because I think it's extended pretty far into the WNBA apparatus. I happen to be uh, listening this week to. Um, Frank Isola and Brian Scalabrini. Frank Isola, I think, maybe of old school colleague it of was. yours, and now a new school yep. colleague of yours. Yeah, the the, the television star, by the way, Frank, or multimedia media history. Star. We were the yeah. very first two people to appear on the SNY network. Um, the two of us with Gary Apple. That yeah. is, there should be a yeah. statue or something. But please go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, Frank, Frank quickly told his agent, "Let me let me go to a little bigger platform here because that's that SNY money is not going to pay for schooling." Um, so I heard Sue Bird um, interviewed on um, Sirius uh, XM NBA's morning show with Frank and Brian, and you know, on top of obviously talking about Sue and she's and now she's going to retire in an amazing career. Like, if I'm correct about this, I think Sue may have been the one to bring up Griner. If I maybe maybe it was Frank, but like the point is. It was an interview ostensibly about Sue Bird, but there was a discussion about Brittany Griner. And so I think it speaks to what you're, you're saying, TJ, in that like prominent WNBA people in particular have put themselves out there to try to get publicity. So two more things here. Um, in reading your work and in obviously reading the AP and others, I mean, if this ends with a prisoner swap, man, like, some of the people they're they're discussing who would be swapped who are being held in in our country uh these are some bad hombres and um it is a challenging situation i think for the current white house right like you want to bring her back home no matter what but the reality is to bring her back home you may have to let out a really, really bad person into the universe. Yeah, the guy whose name has been out there is is a Russian named Victor Boot, who's doing a, right. a, a turn in this country for financing terrorism. Um, they've wanted him before, um, you know, and, and there is a there is a real division in, in the federal government over, you know, do you just cut a deal because that's what it takes to get an American home, or do you have to hold out because you're going to create an incentive to kidnap more Americans? There is a strong belief, um, you know, among a number of people, in, including some in the State Department, that the incentive is there. Cut the deal, get them out, and then try to create conditions that make it less favorable or you go after the people who have done this sort of thing. You know, who, we don't know what a post-Putin Russia is going to look like. We don't know when it's going to be a post-Putin Russia. Will they continue to do this? China does this. Other countries do this. Um, you know, uh, Turkey, um, you know, Hungary are countries that have been accused of the same thing. Um, you know, do you just cut that deal? Um, but the, the other complication right now is that there's another American over there, Paul Whelan, who has been there for more than three years. He was convicted of espionage. The U.S. government says that it was ridiculous. He's not. Uh, he's not a spy. They have not been willing to cut a deal to this point. 
and so everyone I've spoken to said the White House is well aware of the politics of how do you bring home either Paul Whelan or Brittany Griner without the other because of the immediate political response there will be and Russia's well-honed uh, social media machine that is designed to sow discord in the U.S., the bots will be out and about. If you bring Brittany Griner and not Paul Whelan, you're going to be hearing, oh, they brought home the, the black lesbian, but not the white male. Um, see, this is, this, is, this is what Joe Biden cares about. If it's the other way around, um, oh, you know, they bring the white male home, uh, but they don't care about, about the, the black gay female. Um, they know that's going to be the reaction. This is a country already split in half um, when it comes to these issues. Everything's confirmation bias. Um, so there is strong political pressure to get both at the same time. I mean, again, in fact, Paul Whelan's been there three years. Um, you know, there's, there's pressure to get Brittany Griner home right now. But, um, you know, they they. But you, you mentioned it before. I mean, you, for Brittany Griner's family, for Paul Whelan's family, there is one goal. Get that person home, period. That's all they care about. For the Biden administration, the State Department, there are multiple goals. You have not only, you know, more than one person being held abroad. You've got broader U.S. foreign policy. You've got relations with Russia. They have multiple uh, motivations here. Um, and that's that's where you're going to see conflict is you know, they may be acting in good faith. And I've talked to people who said, hey, look, you know, they got Trevor Reed home, the former Marine who was released in, in May. Um, they want to get these people home. Um, but you're asking the public to trust an institution to be acting in good faith and, and with haste when this is not an American public, you know, geared to think that way. TJ, it was... Um we talked before uh, on the the last podcast you were on about like the women's basketball players playing in Russia is is off the table. I think both of us agreed for years and years and years, if not forever. I, right. I mean, never say never, but I, I can't. I could not see a American player playing in Russia in the next ten years. That's just my take. I, I would extend that to. Uh, I would really be surprised at just how many Americans like travel to Russia um, in, in certainly in the near term. And I think even in the, the medium term, I think you sort of see this stuff. Um, well, there, there, I mean, and, there is a do not travel order know. from the state department now at right. the moment. Right. Yeah. I, I, you just, you just, again, like I, um, you know, I, I, as someone who's, who was there once, like it, it's surreal to me. I think you said you were there once too. It's like the idea, I should say twice. I was there actually, cause I was at Sochi too. Um, the idea of going just it, it it's like unfathomable at um at this point have you um have you talked to any um women's basketball players or sort of the people within women's basketball as to whether you think that extends to other countries that are close to russia and the reason i ask that is because i know you know this for many many players um playing overseas was the way that they could make significant money using their athletic career. The WNBA has increased salaries and certainly increased salaries for the, for the, for the better players. But for so many professional women's professional basketball players, like overseas was their way that they could, they could bank in the off season from the WNBA and like use their athletic talents to like set themselves up for 
a little bit more for the future. Um, Russia's now gone, but I don't know. I was thinking about this when I knew I was going to have you on. Like, do you think this would impact players like wanting to play in Turkey or France or wherever? I, I don't know. I'm just I'm wondering if in the course of your reporting, and I know you are not a women's basketball writer per se. I wonder if playing overseas has come up vis-a-vis. Uh, what's happened to Brittany Griner? No, it's most of what I know. I know f- through people like my colleagues, um, like Michelle Vopel, the legendary women's basketball writer who I'm proud to call a colleague. Um, you know, she's the one having those more direct conversations. And then I've talked to some other people as well. Um, I mean, it really is kind of a fascinating thing. Russia may be gone, not just because of what's happened here, but because the money that was behind that league may be gone. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. the the just the oligarchs have been the target of of the uh, you know international economic sanctions. So there may just not be the opportunity. Yeah, and by not not to interrupt you, by the way, the 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 oligarch who famously Bird and Tarazi played for was, if I'm correct about this, assassinated. I know Alexander Wolf wrote an incredible piece on like just the luxury that some of the WNBA players were, um, you know, sort of were part of. But I believe that. That guy actually, I think, was killed, and so it's it just sort of speaks to like, you know, if you play there, you were sort of playing in the wild, wild west to start with. You were, I mean, and Alex Wolf wrote about this, and I think you have too, actually. That it wasn't just about the money; it was about the life. They were treated Correct. like stars, and yep, you know, that's yes, there is a legitimate point in this country that you know, no, no female basketball player is going to make what LeBron James does because the market simply isn't there, but. The people I speak to around women's sports say that they cannot wait to move to the conversation about whether or not women's sports have been allowed to to really market themselves. Uh, if they've had the opportunities of, you know, give them the platform and see what happens. You know, let the NBA get out of the way, um, do more to promote them, um, expand the league. Uh, let them truly see what they're worth on the market, because the belief is the audience will be there. And you've seen, you know, and you and I discussed this, you know, privately very recently about how when, uh, when you move these events from ESPN2 to the main network or to ABC, um, when Fox carries something as opposed to Fox Sports, um, there are audiences that are there. Um, so, yeah, there, there clearly is not the market for women's basketball the way there is for the NBA right now, but there is a strong belief that the market is being artificially, you know, suppressed and or being suppressed period. And, you know, they're, they're eager to see that happen. Um, I don't, you know, if they can still go to other leagues and, you know, whether it's Israel, Italy, Turkey, um, someplace where they can make money, it's simple economics, you know, now the WNBA and, you know, the NBA are trying to change that by, you know, this exclu- exclusivity deal where if you play for a WNBA team, you have to report on a certain date and you cannot say it's because of, you know, I've got an obligation to my team somewhere on the other side of the world. So they're making that harder. But at the same time, Adam Silver has said, yeah, we need to do more. Um, that, you know, that, that is going to happen, I think. Um, but it's funny because I thought there would also be more of a reckoning about where this money is coming from. And there is, you know, and then the next day, everything blows up with, um, 
you know, the Saudi golf tour with, you know, 54, um, took me a while to realize it's 54 and not LIV, but, um, you know, that's Phil Mickelson and Greg Norman and all these guys, you know, immediately hit with these questions about this blood money that they're taking and, and trying to rationalize the, the murder of, of, of Khashoggi and, you know, an, an American journalist, um, or, you know, a journalist worked for an American outlet, um, you know, whatever shame there was in taking money, from a regime like that, it hasn't stopped them and they're still gaining people. So people have an incredible ability to rationalize. I think it's a little different in women's sports. I'd much rather hear what you have to think about it because the fans behind women's sports and the apparatus around them are much more geared toward advocacy than, than, than men's sports. Men's sports people watch usually because you're a fan of the NBA or Major League Baseball. The people watching the WNBA, they're not just basketball fans. They believe in women's sports and, and they want to advocate for the growth of it and for women's participation. So it may be different. You know, you've got the WNBA is much more geared toward activism than the men's leagues are. The NBA, much more so than Major League Baseball or the NFL, certainly the NFL. Um, but. I don't know. I kind of wonder if that's going to be different with, with, with women's sports as well. You're, you're way closer to it than I am. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, there's a lot there, by the way, I did, I did uh, just for sort of just for point of information for the people listening to this. Um, I'm going to mispronounce his name. Shabatai Von Kalamovich. I, you know, I, I'm sure I'm way off on this. That was the guy who owned, um, the team that, uh, that Bird and Tarazi and I think maybe Lauren Jackson, a couple other WNBA players played for. He was a massive women's basketball fan. Um, and uh, really, I think, sort of like the Americanization of a lot of uh, stuff. Uh, former KGB agent, by the way, gunned down um, in Moscow in uh, in 2009. So I'm sure a murder that was never, uh, to, you know, probably no convictions on that one, too. So that in terms of... Um, you know, it's interesting in terms of what you're saying. There's always been that advocacy for women's basketball um, from uh, the fans to the administrators. And in many ways, um, there was, I don't want to say an expectation, but even in the coverage of it, I think if reporters were being honest, they, they would say that they were in some ways advocates for the sport because the sport wasn't being covered nearly as big as other sports. And if you were covering women's basketball, like someone like Michelle Vopel, I think at its at your core, I think you really appreciated it and, and enjoyed it. Um, and so um, I think advocacy, as you said, is just sort of, it's sort of built, it's like part of the DNA of, of all of it. It's sort of, it's sort of built in. And then if you want to extend it into the many, many different sort of subtexts, I um, let's put it this way. It would be fascinating to me how women's basketball fans would see if there was like an LIV type of women's basketball league. And would would the fact that the women would be getting paid, let's say, I'm just going to make this up. It's obviously not happening. Like NBA style money. Would that overweigh anyone's issues with where like the money came from i think for some it would not but i definitely think for some it would um 
But I think as I've gotten older, and I think I know you know this too, and you've covered, you know, you've done a lot more harder investigations than I ever had. Man, like sports washing exists yeah. everywhere, and it's very hard for any of these places to be clean. Like the, the, the NBA is not clean. You know, obviously golf right now is not clean. I many times, just on an individual note, I, I didn't feel clean covering an Olympics in Beijing or in Sochi. You know what I mean? I, I guess I could justify it in my mind. Well, you know, I'm not on the take from the Russian or Chinese government. I'm going to write a, write what I see. But at the end of the day, if I'm there, am I not in some ways um, endorsing the fact that these games exist in this country? So, you know, I mean, if you really ever really got down to the sort of the granular part of it, it's hard. It's hard for anything to be totally clean. No, it is. You know, you know what? It sucks, yeah, Greg, but it's and true. Greg Norman raised that point about you know the. So- yeah, and I don't want to agree with Greg Norman. It pisses me <laughs> off because he is taking blood money. At the same time, like you got to be and, honest. Yeah, and he was, and he was, you know, and he was saying right after all this, um, you know, first really gained attention. We already take Saudi money. The PGA takes Saudi money, um, and he Correct. was absolutely right. right about that. And you know, it's one of those things where people aren't aware of it, and this is so egregious and so obvious that people can jump in and, and you know, make, you know, express this righteous indignation about something. Um, you know, there's a lot of attention paid to, to Dan Snyder in the NFL um, because of, you know, how blatantly awful all those things going on with that team are. Um, look at <laughs> right. some of the other NFL owners, you know, look at, look at some of the people who own the teams in this country, you know, look what it takes to be a billionaire Ugh. in this country as well. I mean, when I was covering major league baseball, yep. they did not need, need me to be an advocate, right? <laughs> they really didn't. And at some point you just kind of go along with these things because we're all in the game and that's the conversation that you take and, uh, you know, at least that, that you're entering into. And, even if the, the Olympics were someplace, um, you know, you and I were both in London. Um, those are incredibly well. There, there's, yeah, there's no, there's no, I, there's not a country in the world that, I don't know, maybe short of New Zealand. I'm mean, just trying to think like everyone in some ways sort of has their hands in a place that's a little unclean, I guess. And maybe I'm just rationalizing. You tell me. If like something is once removed, it feels a little bit better to me than if it's direct. Like, well, no, you t- you're, you're, you're kind of laundering. Like, if I if I buy a piece of electronic equipment that was made in China, like it feels different to me than if I signed up to go on the live tour. But I'm just being honest. Like, I don't know if that makes me a hypocrite or if I'm just rationalizing the whole no, process. No, and this is look, we we do rationalize to some extent. And there are things that we can. Look at it like they're almost like these cultural euphemisms where there are certain words there. There's a word I could say, you know, that if, if on my network, I, I, I said the F word, I would be dragged into Norby Williamson's office and suspended and, and whatever. But if I referred to lovemaking um, or said to heck with somebody expressing the exact same sentiment, but, you know, with a different language. You know, that's how we make ourselves more comfortable. It's kind of similar to this. We find these ways of talking about it and creating a buffer between us and the reality of what's happening. Um, If it's flat out where the Saudi government wants to finance that, that's something that you just you cannot ignore. But when it's laundered through these smaller events, when they're sponsoring something and they're not the main sponsor, we find a way to overlook it and rationalize it. And 
you know, part of, and, and one frustration in this business is when you do point out stuff like that, hey, here's really who's behind this. Here's really what goes on in the Olympics. Here's really what it takes for somebody to land the Olympic Games. Here's really what happens to the money behind it. Here's what really happens to the workers, you know, the migrant workers who were hired in places like Qatar and, you know, to build World Cup venues. Um, there's a little bit of outrage, but it's not sustained very long. Um, you know, we we sort of live with these euphemisms and rationalizations to just distance ourselves from it. Um, but it happens and, and it does happen absolutely everywhere. And, you know, is every W I can't tell you whatever, how every WNBA owner got his or her money. I, I don't know at all. Um, you know, so Russia becomes a very easy target when we're talking about this. The Saudi government's a very easy target. Um, and one thing we've learned is that whether it's athletes or journalists, you know, we, I'm, I'm not going to say anything that right now it's going to get me, you know, dragged into building 12 on ESPN campus. But um, there are people in our industry who are very good journalists who work for companies that you can't believe they would take a, take a paycheck from. And they're able to say, well, I'm able to do my work and I'm separate from this element of it. Um, but, you know, we're, we're, we're no better than anybody else sometimes. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Last one for me, uh, and I appreciate it. You got a lot longer than I uh, than I expected, so thank you. Um, if people want to follow the what's happening with Brittany Griner, um, other than the sort of conventional you know, your ESPN and New York Times, Washington Post, you know, Reuters, Guardian, whoever covers this stuff uh, globally. Have you found some people online or in social media that are really, really interesting people or experts or maybe even uh, experts in Russian law? I would love to uh, provide my listeners because if you've gone this far, then you're really interested in this. In yeah, this if case. you stuck like, with who, this, you're either, yeah, then, you're either then, my then mother you're in. <laughs> or... <laughs> yeah, or my cousin Fred. Uh, so if... Uh, who would you recommend or who have you been who, who who's tj quinn using sort of um to help educate himself when it comes to this stuff there are a few in particular one is not terribly active on social media but a lawyer named tom firestone who's a former u.s attorney assistant u.s attorney from the southern district in new york he has tried criminal cases in russia um he's um i've, I've quoted him a couple of times uh one source who um I, I've come to think the world of Professor Danielle Gilbert from the U.S. Air Force Academy. She's an expert in state-sponsored hostage-taking and has had invaluable insight. There are very few people who do academically what she does. Um, she's a professor, assistant professor of military studies and strategy. I might get the order wrong, but um, but this this is her bailiwick. Um, she, you know, she's... Um, been invaluable about why Russia does what it does, why you need this pretense of the of the legal process in order to negotiate. Um, so I would highly recommend go look for uh, Danielle Gilbert, G-I-L-B-E-R-T. Tom Firestone is great. Um, there's another guy I'm talking to, William Pomerantz, um, who is 
Oh, God, I'm blanking on his title, but he's with the Wilson Center for Foreign Policy Studies, expert on Russian criminal law as well. Um, and, you know, all really excellent people. Uh, this is really good. TJ Quinn's an investigative reporter and senior writer for ESPN. Um, he has been on um, Brittany Griner's story uh, for some time now. Uh, it's a pretty important week in that case, and it'll probably be a pretty important summer in that case. So follow TJ's work on ESPN. If you are on Twitter, he's at TJ Quinn ESPN, and he's absolutely, in my opinion, one of the one of the primary people in the United States that you should be following if you are interested in this case. I think TJ, just, man, just thank generally, you. Go ahead. Not, not just yeah. this case. You should be following. Yeah, not just for, this case. If yeah. you want uh, like fantasy football tips for tight ends. No, I mean, well, maybe not. But. TJ's, yeah. <laughs> no, TJ, obviously, um, not just this case, but he'll be doing, obviously, his other fine investigative work for uh, for ESPN. And, uh, you know, so far, TJ, I haven't seen you. Have you ever been on Around the Horn, TJ, on one of those shows? Or You're like the only person I know who hasn't, who hasn't done that yet. I've not been on Around the Horn. I think they're just Amazing. afraid that I'll, I'll crush everybody. Um, they're ducking me like a top contender. But um, right, I don't blame you, though. All right. Van Natta, too, right? I feel like he hasn't been on either. He might have been, actually. I don't know. Oh, but. really? Oh, look at that. All right, we'll be around the horn with TJ Quinn, Don Van Nata coming up soon. Uh, TJ, thank you as always. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, man. All right, my thanks to TJ Quinn of ESPN. Uh, gave me far more time than I expected. Uh, I asked him for 25 minutes, and we went plus 50. So thank you, TJ. I very uh, appreciate that. And one of the best out there. And it's been one of the best out there for a long time. Um, if you like these kind of conversations, please head to uh, wherever you get the Sports Media with Richard Deitch podcast. Leave us a five-star review and a nice note. That's how this podcast continues. Last couple of podcasts uh, this week, uh, we had Lindsay Adler, senior writer of The Athletic, on how to cover a historic sports team and everything that comes with that. She's uh, the athletics writer for the New York Yankees. Adam Stern of Sports Business Journal broke a big piece with John O'Rand on uh, F1 returning to ESPN. So we did a lot of Formula One talk uh, as it relates to the media and some NASCAR and IndyCar talk as well conversation before that espn chairman jimmy pitaro 63 minutes with uh, the head of espn on many many different topics uh, if you're into sports media you obviously will find that i think uh, newsworthy and interesting michael mccann one of the great legal uh, sports people in this country was the guest before pitaro and then had emily kaplan of uh, espn on talking about covering the nhl from ice level i uh, want to thank patrick antonetti for all his hard work this week I want to thank everybody at Cades 13 for their support. And I want to wish everybody a, uh, in Canada, certainly a great Canada Day. Everybody in the United States, uh, an awesome 4th of July. It's been a long run. Everybody deserves uh, a little rest and relaxation and uh, some good positive vibes. So I hope if you're listening to this, you get that. Uh, what else? That's about it, man. That is about it. Thanks again to TJ Quint. Thanks to uh, Patrick uh, for all his hard work. And thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League Podcast. 
each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.